Well, we're wrapping up today our look at the temptation of Jesus. And it's so important that we understand what's going on here because as uh, we have seen, we need to know how to handle the temptations that come our way. Now, the three temptations that Jesus was faced with in review are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And these are the same temptations that we uh, face today. Satan is not creative. Every temptation we face is going to fall into one of these three categories. If you'll recall, he only has one tactic, and that is to cause us to doubt the word of God or to uh, twist the word of God and uh, to use it to try to pull us away from him. And uh, in fact, uh, the first temptation, if you'll recall, in it we're tempted to doubt God's love and to think that we have to satisfy our legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. Now, if you recall, the first temptation was to turn stones into bread. Is there anything wrong with food or eating? No. How about sleeping or watching a movie or even making or spending money? Not in and of themselves, no. Providing for our family, nothing wrong with that. None of those are wrong, but Satan tempts us to abuse what can be used in a righteous way. And Jesus had the power to do this. He was also legitimately hungry, having fasted for 40 days. Later, he'd turn water into wine and he'd feed 5,000 people. But it was wrong to obey Satan and follow Satan's will, Satan's ideas to meet his own needs. There's nothing wrong with appetite, but it's a short step over that to lust. So his tactics haven't changed since the Garden of Eden, whenever he twisted God's word. And since Eve was not well-versed in God's word, she wound up leading Adam off and there we went. So today we're going to start by looking at the second temptation. And this is where he, well, I'll just read it. It says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. What if you could have the gain without any of the pain? Sometimes there are different ways where we are different areas where we really wish that like losing weight. You know, they say no pain, no gain. And uh, and we. People make millions off of trying to sell people on shortcuts in that area, don't they? And yet the bottom line is no pain, no gain. You're going to at least have to get kind of hungry. And uh, so this is what Satan offers Jesus. 
He knew God's plan for the son was the messianic kingdom, but it was the way of the cross and Jesus' painful death was God's way. And Satan offers Jesus what appears to be all the power and glory, all the kingdoms without the cross. It's one of the great temptations that we face. All the pain, I mean, all the gain with no pain. He offers to jump over God's plan and replace God as Jesus' benefactor. God had already promised to give all of the kingdoms of the world to the Son, but first the Son had to suffer and die, we see in the Old Testament. Suffering first and then the glory. Satan tempts Jesus to be a shortcut savior, if you will. But the price is high. Beware the temptation to doubt or to grow impatient with God's plan, particularly when you're enduring difficult circumstances. There are no shortcuts. God's way and timing is the best way. But we're still tempted to take matters into our own hands to help God out or give in to instant gratification. The next time you see a report about the war in the Middle East, remember that Abraham took matters into his own hands because he doubted God and he grew impatient in waiting for God's plan. Satan tempts us to worship him. Satan loves worship. It was an illicit desire for worship that belongs to God that caused Satan's fall. It's why idolatry is such a horrible sin. Worship of anything other than God is satanic worship. Augustine wrote in the fourth century, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. With this definition, education can be an idol. Beauty and health can become an idol. Money can become an idol. Even your family, your spouse, your children or grandchildren can become idols. Technology and entertainment can become idols. One of the more common idols is I deserve happiness, my happiness. That's one that Satan loves to use on people. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to be blessed. And God wants to bless you. You know, all these are gifts of God. All of them are means to an end, but they're idolatrous when they're made the end themselves. Because he was faithful to his heavenly father and resisted this, this temptation, when Jesus was ready to leave this earth, he was able to say this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If he had given in to the temptation that Satan put before him, he would not have been able to receive the kingdom of God. He wouldn't have been able to tell his disciples, to tell you and me that all authority in heaven and on earth are now given to him. There's an old, old saying, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you're going to miss them both. And just think about it. Those who live godly lives live much more peaceful and satisfied lives than those who go around just seeking the things of the earth. All those things that they pursue ultimately just disappear like dust in their hands. We have a heavenly home waiting for us. We have so much waiting for us. If we will remain true, as Jesus says in the book of Revelation, he who overcomes, I will give so many wonderful things. The third temptation, Satan tempts us to test God presumptuously. He says, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And now that was like 500 feet high. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Now then Jesus has responded twice with scripture. And so now then Satan takes the scripture and tries to twist it. For it is written. Satan is a scholar of the Bible, but for the wrong reasons. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And you remember that Jesus replied, on the other hand, you shall not, it is written, you shall not tempt or test the Lord, your God. And again, there's a lesson there. You've got to take scripture in context and you've got to take it in the context of the whole Bible. You can't just take bits and pieces and see that's what Satan was doing. He was taking bits and pieces and you just can't do that. There's some people who want to take all the, the, the good stuff but they don't want to have any obedience. They don't want to have any of the sacrifice or any of the other things that he wants. So when a Christian is in the will of God, he or she can claim their father's protection and care. We find a wonderful example of that in the third chapter of Daniel. Uh, the three Hebrew believers refused to sin by bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And when Nebuchadnezzar was incensed and he threatens to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace, they point out that God can and he is able to protect them. And then they go on and say, nevertheless, even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you, O Nebuchadnezzar. 
There's a big difference between stepping out in faith and testing God. When a believer willingly puts themselves in trouble and expects to God and expects God to step in and rescue him or her, that's testing God and it's a dangerous thing. There's a story, I've shared it with you probably a couple of times before, but it just fits here so well. There's a guy that uh, uh, the police came by and knocked on his door and told him that a uh, flood was coming and he needed to get out of the house and get to higher ground. He said, oh, I'm a believer. God's going to take care of me. You just go ahead and take care of all those sinners. God will take care of me. And so uh, then the water started to come up started going over the streets, got almost up to his house, and uh, somebody comes by in a boat, a motorboat, and they offer to, to take him. And uh, he said, you, you take people care of people that need your help. I've got God to take care of me. And so then the water continues to rise, and it continues to rise. Next thing you know, he's up on his roof, and a rescue helicopter comes by and the guy using the megaphone uh, tells him to, we're throwing a ladder down, uh, get on the ladder and let, help, let us get you out of here. He says, God's going to take care of me. You go rescue people that need rescuing. And so they went off and the water kept rising and the guy drowned. And so he got to heaven. He was really upset. And he looked, he went around and he found the Lord. And he walked up to him. He said, hey, why didn't you take care of me? I, I told everybody that you were going to take care of me and you didn't. He said, what are you talking about, man? I sent a policeman to warn you. I sent a boat to pick you up. I even sent a helicopter. What more did you want me to do? But you see, this is a great example of putting yourself in harm's way and uh, not uh, just using the sources, resources that God has given you. You don't test the Lord. That's a great example of testing the Lord. Now, this temptation is probably the most dangerous one because it seemingly encourages people to exercise their faith in God, you see. But it really arrogantly and brazenly demands things of God, tries to manipulate God, turning him into some utilitarian genie who grants our every whim. One of the forms that this takes today, another aspect of this particular temptation is pragmatism. If Jesus had given in, you see, the Jews would have worshipped him and declared him king because they, their scholars had determined that there was going to come a time when the Messiah was going to stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Well, Satan helped him fulfill that prophecy, didn't he? There Jesus is, standing on the pinnacle, just like they said that he would. But then he says, throw yourself down. That wasn't in the rabbinical writings, the throwing yourself down part. But if he threw himself 500 feet down and got up and dusted himself off, that would have gotten people's attention. And they would have uh, worshipped him and made him king as their Messiah, their earthly Messiah. And the ends 
would have justified the means is the temptation there. Short-circuiting things in order to get what you know God wants you to have. What's bad about that? The American church today, brothers and sisters in Christ, worships at the altar of pragmatism. The reasoning is, if it works, if it makes us big and successful, it must be of God. It's seen in programs, it's seen in music, it's seen in the watering down of God's message. We worship at the altar of success instead of at the feet of God. The end justifies the means. Satan loves to use this in the church. It's one of his greatest temptations to church folk. And I've seen Christian young people date an unbeliever, rationalizing that they're trying to win him to the Lord. It never works out that way. You lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas. Instead of winning them to the Lord, they get pulled away from the Lord. The end does not justify the means. Children or, or Christian parents will enable and excuse the sinful behavior of an adult child and fail to face them with biblical truth because they're trying to win them back with the love of God. And the end does not justify the means. Because he resisted uh, his temptation of forcing God to rescue him, but instead was obedient even to death on the cross, God resurrected him and exalted him. The things that God, that Satan tempts you with may look good and he can cause you to lose sight that God offers things that are so much better. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because he remained faithful, he has the authority to give us provision, power, and resurrection if we will hang in there with him. Now, what I hope that you will all take away from this series that we've gone through and this study that we've done of the, uh, the temptations are, are is this. Many Christians are defeated because they're not seriously engaging in the warfare to which we're called, or they go into battle unprepared. You and I have at our disposal the same spiritual resources that Jesus used when he defeated uh, Satan. Plus, we have something that Jesus did not have. We have Jesus in heaven right now, praying and interceding for us. While temptation is Satan's weapon to defeat us, it can become God's tool to build us up spiritually. In Luke 4, Jesus uh, shows us what we need to do to resist temptation. And uh, I'm just going to go through these things very quickly. First of all, in all these accounts of the temptation we see, we need to be committed to spending quality time alone with God. Not only during this time of Lent, but also any other time. 
Jesus would get away from crowds and from his disciples and spend time alone with his heavenly father. If Jesus needed such times, so do we. Leonard Ravenhill once said, a sinning man will stop praying and a praying man will stop sinning. There's truth in that. Next, be prepared for temptation, especially after a spiritual victory. We've seen that pattern all through scripture. Anytime you have a great victory, there's generally going to come a time of temptation. Jesus was tempted immediately after his baptism when the Father affirmed him from heaven and the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. Jerome said, baptism does not drown the devil. And that is so true, isn't it? John Wesley, he thought that he was dead to sin after he was saved. And then all of a sudden he realized it just got knocked out a bit, but then it revived and he wasn't so happy about it anymore. But uh, he just, uh, but John Wesley realized and recognized that the flesh is going to remain a problem. If Jesus' spiritual victory didn't prevent him from being tempted, neither will ours. We must walk with God every day and be especially on guard after things are going really well. That's the worst time. Next, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and that's how he was led into the wilderness when he was tempted. The filling of the Spirit will not, you can see this, it does not insulate you from temptation. But if you walk in the Spirit, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh, we're told. You'll still have the desires, but you won't yield to them. Each day, we have to yield ourselves to God's Holy Spirit and walk in conscious dependence on Him. If Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit, how much more must we depend on the Holy Spirit? Be armed with scriptures, the next one. Each time Satan attacked, Jesus answered him with scripture, specifically with quotations from Deuteronomy. And we need to be so familiar with the Bible that while we may not be able to quote it verbatim, we can find the Bible, the in the Bible, the spiritual defense that we need. Another, always be ready for further attacks. The very end of the passage that we read today makes this clear. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. And there's not a period there, is there? It goes on until an opportune time. The next time you're tired, the next time you're hungry, the next time someone has hurt you, he'll find that opportune time. And that's when you need to be ready when you're vulnerable, that's when you need to be ready. Then be encouraged because Jesus knows what you're going through. I love what it says in Hebrews that we serve a great high priest 
who's been touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what you're going through and he's more than happy to help you. He loves you. He loves you. Now this one, I hope you find this convicting. Victory is always possible. Because Jesus won, we can too. Listen to what we're promised in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you, will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No temptation is new. No temptation is irresistible. Now, this is what I hope will stay with you. There is not one temptation that you have ever faced and that you gave into that you could not have resisted. That's what I hope brings conviction to you when you realize that it wasn't overwhelming, that you had resources at your authority to resist, and you chose not to. The good news is the next temptation, you know what to do. The next temptation, you know that you have resources that the Lord is willing to help you. You do not have to give in. If you give in, it's your choice because he's not going to allow you to be attempted to be tempted beyond what you can handle. And he will provide an escape. Hang on to that. Hang on to that. Now then, sadly, for the most part here in the United States, we have neglected a vital part of the Christian life. Something that God has called each one of us to. And some people are so unfamiliar with the word holiness. This is what we have been called to. Whenever the United Methodist Church or whenever the Methodist Church got started, it was to spread scriptural holiness throughout the land. Methodists were looked on as holy people. We're still expected by God to be holy. Polls on our own experience consistently indicate that there's little difference between those who claim to be born again and the population at large when it comes to sexual morality, financial priorities, materialism, hedonism, and worldview. Those who claim to be Christians think and act just as the world does. We may claim to believe in Jesus and the Bible, but our lives don't back up the claims. The bottom line is that Christians know very little of what it means to resist temptation. And when we wonder, then we wonder why we're as miserable and confused as the lost world around us. Or why we have so many marital and family issues, why we lack peace, why our churches are fragmenting and battling and lack power. 
And the key is right here. We've heard it all the last three Sundays. God has called us to holiness. He's called us to resist sin and to resist the devil. Jesus did what he did so that we could have the victory in our battle against sin. Jesus won so that we could win, so that we could be victorious. But first, we have to fight. We have to resist. It says in Scripture, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Are you willing to do that? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.